The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I've already asked this question a couple of times recently in messages, but I want to ask it again since it's the central topic of today's message, and it is simply, what is the gospel? How would you explain it? I mean, one of the most common answers that you hear from Christians today goes something like this. Well, the gospel is that Jesus loves you and died for your sins so that you can be saved and go to heaven when you die. Um, In other words, we basically are equating the gospel with the truths about our personal salvation. How can I be saved? The problem, though, is that this is not how the Bible itself defines the gospel. Um, Then the question is, how did we come to define the gospel this way? I think it has a lot to do with how we've come to think of salvation. During my high school and college days, uh, there was this really popular evangelism training program called Evangelism Explosion, or EE. And EE trained Christians to ask people basically a couple of questions. And the first was, do you know for sure that you are going to be with God in heaven? And then the second question that you would follow up with that is this. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? These are the questions that Christians were trained to ask in order to launch into a discussion about, quote, the gospel. And this approach to evangelism exposes a couple of interesting assumptions about salvation. First, that salvation is mainly about self-preservation making sure that you go to the right place when you die. And then secondly, to be saved is to agree with the right facts about God and salvation. And thus, the quiz at the end of your life when you die. And the entire focus of the EE program was to get people to basically, quote, make a decision for Christ. And based on the typical nature of the way the conversation would be guided under this EE training, those who did, quote, make a decision for Christ were often driven by the fear of, frankly, not knowing what would happen to them in the afterlife. And once a person made that decision for Christ, they were then taught to pray what we have come to call the sinner's prayer, after which they were told that they could now know for certain that they will be in heaven with Jesus when they die. I'm going to argue that there are a number of problems with framing the gospel like this. The first is this, that it doesn't tend to produce disciples. Studies show us that well over 50% of people that are led to a, quote, decision for Jesus through this type of our method of evangelism will not continue in the faith. And by separating salvation from discipleship, there is this very worrisome attempt to outline what we could call the 
bottom line minimum requirement needed to be saved. Another problem is that the message is overly self-focused rather than God-focused. What is our problem and what do we need to do in order to get out of the mess that we're in? But most importantly, this approach of evangelism and its underlying assumptions about salvation just simply aren't biblical. Read through the entire New Testament and you will see that neither Jesus nor any of his disciples ever presented the gospel in this way. And to be fair, this isn't just an issue with evangelism explosion. In truth, I think most of us have been taught to witness to people in a very similar way, regardless of our church tradition or training. When we lead people to faith, let me clarify this, we do need to talk to them about an awareness of their sinfulness and about the coming judgment and about the need to repent. They are actually important. But we shouldn't confuse these steps of salvation with what the Bible calls the gospel. And if we only tell them what the steps to salvation are without sharing the good news of the gospel, I think we're in really serious danger of leading people to a decision for Christ out of a fear of what awaits them in death rather than producing faithful followers of Jesus. And so in today's message, I want to lay out a fuller picture of the gospel. And we'll break it up into basically three parts. The gospel according to the early church, the gospel according to the Old Testament, and then the gospel according to Jesus himself. So the gospel according to the early church, what is the gospel? How does the Bible explain it? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, it is considered one of the earliest statements of the gospel found anywhere in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 8, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on, which you received, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. As I mentioned last week, gospel literally means good news, and it almost always refers to some kind of a royal announcement. And Paul tells the Corinthian Christians that he, rewant, he wants to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them when he used to be with them. But before giving the details of the gospel, he points out that he didn't come up with this message himself, but that he was only passing on what was given to him by others. 
In other words, by the time that Paul became a believer, this summary of the gospel that he outlines here in these verses was already well established in the early church. And the content of that good news, interestingly, is completely centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus culminating in his death and resurrection. And here is a very important detail. Twice in that summary, Paul points out so that we make sure that we don't miss that point, that Jesus' death and resurrection were, quote, according to the scriptures. Now, this is an incredibly important detail about the gospel. When he says that, the script, that, that it was according to the scriptures, he is referring to the Old Testament, In other words, we can't understand the meaning of Jesus' life, particularly his death and resurrection, unless we understand the story of Israel first. The Old Testament, and particularly the story of Israel, is inseparable part of the gospel. The way the gospel is often described in our time, it seems if we hardly even need the Old Testament at all. In many Christians' minds, it's just a long, complicated backstory to the New Testament that is often, frankly, confusing and often seems utterly irrelevant to the bigger story of the gospel. But the story of Israel finds its completion and its fulfillment in the story of Jesus. It's, in other words, all one story. And so to truly understand the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and its significance even for our lives and how we need to respond to that good news, we have to understand the Old Testament. And so let's take a look at that. What is the gospel according to the Old Testament? Well, we've already been exploring actually a lot of that, haven't we? In the earlier Bible Project series messages, uh, we looked at the start of the story being in this garden in Eden, created by, for humans uh, who were made in God's image. The garden represented a temple in the sense that it is where heaven and earth met, humans living in the presence of God. And they were also given this calling to be his image bearers, which meant to rule with God in his creation, bringing order and fruitfulness to this world, developing it according to our dependency on God's wisdom and his leadership in our life. But the serpent undermined that trust in God, causing Adam and Eve to reject God's wisdom and leadership over them. And the message was very clear that they would decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong. They would decide what was best for them. And the stories that follow in Genesis and the books beyond show the devastation of that decision for all of the human race. Because humanity would then descend into an ever-darkening night of sin and of chaos and brokenness. But even at the very moment that sin entered God's good creation, God promises that he would provide a solution. And as he cursed the serpent, God told him in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
In other words, from the woman will come a descendant who will defeat you once and for all. And this will set the stage for the rest of the Old Testament where we are now looking for a deliverer that will be sent by God to save his people. And not far into the story of Genesis, this man named Noah seems like a possible candidate chosen from among all the people by God to build an ark and save humanity from the flood. But after the flood, we find Noah naked in a drunken stupor, yelling curses at his son. He was clearly not the one. Years later, God would choose another man named Abraham and gave him this promise in Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Through this promise to Abraham, the nation of Israel will be born. And through this nation, God said the blessings would flow to all the peoples of the earth. And after delivering them out of slavery in Egypt, God commands Moses to tell his people in Exodus 19, verse 4 to 6, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. What an amazing promise that God says, I've chosen one nation through which I will fulfill my promises to the world to bring about my redemption, my salvation. But the problem was that Israel couldn't keep its faithfulness to God. So for 40 years, Israel was tested by God in the wilderness and they failed just about every test that they were given. But maybe Moses himself was the one who God had promised would turn things around and bring about a fully restored world. But sadly, even Moses couldn't fully obey God. And as a result, he himself was not permitted to enter the promised land. And after the Israelites entered the promised land, things only got worse. Rather than worshiping God, they worshiped idols, and as a result, they became enslaved by these idolatries. And during this time, Israel was led by a series of judges, and, as a re and, and every one of them, though, would end up falling short in one way or another. None of them proved to be the long-awaited one that God had promised. And after the judges came the era of the kings, and of all of the candidates for Messiah, King David stands out as the greatest hope of being the promised one of God to save his people. And although David demonstrated moments of greatness, even David proved to be a flawed leader like all the other leaders who had preceded him. And after David, it only got worse with every king that followed in his reign. And almost all of them would lead Israel deeper into idolatry and further from God until finally judgment came. 
And God sent his people into exile under the hand of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And eventually they were able to return to the promised land. But through the voice of God's prophets, it was clear that Israel's problems were far from over. Their land was still occupied by foreign powers. But more importantly, the hearts of the people were still dead toward God. And on top of that, none of the candidates for this Messiah, this deliverer that God had promised, proved to be the one that they were waiting for. As I shared in a recent message, the Israelites rebuilt the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. But the glory of God's presence never appeared in it. Israel had reclaimed the promised land, but they were essentially still in exile. And it all seemed so hopeless as if God's plan for his creation was irreversibly ruined. But during this period, a prophet named Isaiah appears on the scene and begins speaking words of hope to Israel. And we looked at a couple of these last week. Isaiah 63, verse 8, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support, so my own arm achieved salvation for me. Isaiah 52, verse 10, The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the earth, ends of the earth, will see the salvation of our God. The message was clear. None were found worthy to save his people. And so God says, I will bring about my salvation by my own arm. By my own strength, in other words. And the prophet gives more details about who this servant will be, who will accomplish this. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 2, it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more, no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So the prophet says that hope will arise in this region of Galilee, like a great light shining in the deepest darkness. And the servant of God's choosing will bring the final deliverance of his people, truly bringing them out of exile, as he says in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 to 2. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And this is the note on which the Old Testament ends. With the nation of Israel still in exile from God. Because of their sins. Longing for the promised Messiah to come and deliver them. And then out of nowhere, and this is now the gospel according to Jesus. This man named Jesus appears on the scene. And just before beginning his public ministry, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he will be tested by Satan. And the parallel 
is unmistakable. For 40 years of wilderness, Israel failed just about every test that was placed before them to be faithful to their God. But Jesus did what Israel couldn't, passing every test. And shortly after the temptation, Jesus entered a synagogue uh, for a Sabbath worship service. And then this occurs, captured in Luke chapter 4. For 16 to 21. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up on the Sabbath day. He went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, declaring that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Matthew's gospel records that not long after that, Jesus would move and relocate to Capernaum in the region of Galilee. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 to 17, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of of heaven has come near. And so immediately after identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of the promised servant prophesied by Isaiah, Matthew connects it with Jesus' message to repent because the kingdom of God is dawning on the world. And the message of the kingdom of God was that through Jesus' ministry, the reign of God as king was about to begin. In other words, the brokenness caused by our rebellion that started in the garden is now being restored through Jesus. And when the Messiah came, the Jews believed that he would regather the 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered under these exiles of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so when Jesus begins his ministry, he gathers 12 disciples, which was an unmistakable symbol of the ingathering of Israel's tribes. And shortly after this, just as Moses received the Ten Commandments from God on the Mount of Sinai, Jesus himself would stand on a mountain and deliver what would come to be known as a sermon on the mount. And in it, he paints a picture of what life in the kingdom, life under his leadership can look like, a life that is so compelling that in a number of times it has moved me to tears. 
And in fact, after Easter of 2021, when we wrap up this gospel project series, uh, this Bible project series, uh, I'm planning on preaching a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And in the opening of that sermon, Jesus says, surprisingly, that God does not identify with the powerful elite, the wealthy, the winners, but the poor, the marginalized, the losers, the forgotten ones. And I think, if there is a God in heaven, uh, if people feel that, there is a, if there is a God in heaven, I think what they're thinking is, those are the kind of words that we desperately would want our God to say, isn't it? And in that Sermon on the Mount, God declares, Jesus declares, Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am not just a better Moses. I am actually the fulfillment of everything that was captured in his laws and in the prophets. It all is being fulfilled now in me. And so for three years, Jesus will demonstrate the reality of God's kingdom coming into the kingdoms of this world. And there is this growing buzz. Could this finally be the Messiah after so many false hopes? In fact, there were these moments when the crowd seized, wanted to seize him by force in order to crown him as king. And then at the end of these three years, Jesus would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey to fulfill the royal entry prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. And one of the first things that he does is to clean out the temple in Jerusalem to show that he is the true temple where heaven and earth will finally meet. And then he has this Passover meal with his disciples in order to show them that he was about to truly liberate Israel from exile and reconcile the nation to God once and for all. And it all looks so promising that he is the one until he dies on a Roman cross without hardly even putting up a fight. And that's what his followers think at first. Another false messiah. Another failed promise. But then three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead. And in rising from the dead, a great realization occurred in the hearts of his followers. When they realized that the cross had become the very means by which Jesus would become king over his creation. Remember what I said in an earlier message. To talk about Jesus reigning as king doesn't mean that there was ever a moment when God lost control over his creation. 
But to be king meant that he needed to restore our broken relationship with him because of our sins and our rebellion against him. But by dying on the cross, Jesus reclaimed our surrender to his leadership and reclaimed our worship to him from all of our idols. That was what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And you can just imagine the moment when the disciples realize this. That this is how the Messiah becomes king. Is on a Roman cross by laying down his own life for his people. After his resurrection on this road to Emmaus, Jesus would continue to further open the eyes of his disciples. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Can you just imagine the joy and the wonder when his disciples finally put the whole story together and realized that this was the climax of the story, was the victory of God being won on a cross when his own son was put to death. In other words, the cross of Christ was his coronation. Jesus was the one that they had been waiting for. And his death did not prove the falseness of his claim. But quite the opposite, affirmed it. He died for us that we could be reconciled to God. Paul describes the whole story of the gospel in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the gospel is so much more than a story that you have done some bad things that have angered God. And as a result, you need to feel sorry and go through some type of a formula to get right with God. Really, the gospel story is not actually about us. It is about Jesus. And it is the story that Jesus, by dying on a cross, became king. And he became king because through that death, he reconciled us to God, enabling us once and for all to surrender our lives to God and worship him and him alone. Scott McKnight in the King Jesus Gospel says this, to believe means more than just mentally agreeing to some truth. Even if that truth is that Jesus is Messiah and Lord over all. 
The entire sweep of the story of Israel and the story of Jesus ushers us into a world where God's people rely on and trust in God. And such a trusting relationship generates a life of obedience, holiness, and love. The messianic, lordly, and kingly confession of Jesus is not incidental to the Bible. It is the point of the Bible. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus is that Messiah, that Lord, and, the key, and that King. We are his subjects. The question over and over in the Bible is, who is the rightful Lord of this cosmic temple? The answer shifts in the pages of Israel's story until it comes to Jesus. And we get not a full stop, but an exclamation point. Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. Yes, the problem is our sin. Yes, we need to be forgiven of sinfulness and our sins, but that sin and that forgiveness are connected to our lordly assignments and to our priestly responsibilities and to our flailing and failing attempts to usurp God's tasks to make them ours. The only one worthy to sit on that throne is King Jesus. What McKnight is saying is this. When we focus only on a method of how to be saved and somehow divorce it from this story, then what will we end up with this, this kind of distorted picture that I did some bad things and I have to make some amends and go through this method that will make me right with God and that will mean that when I die, I know where I go. As if what's important here is cleaning up some cosmic ledger with God because of the bad things we've done. Now, sin and forgiveness are a part of that story, but the gospel story is so much greater than that. It is a story that from the beginning of creation, we have not just done some bad things, but have absolutely rejected God and his leadership in our life. And that through the cross of Christ, God is reclaiming his kingship over our life. And when we hear that gospel message, the only reasonable response is total surrender and worship to this king who alone is worthy of the control of our lives. And to reclaim our identity as image bearers who will now rule with God in his kingdom and exhibit the same selfless qualities of servanthood that Jesus exhibited. In his life. The promise of the gospel is so much greater than sin management or even knowing where you're going to go when you die. It is a reality that we experience even in this life to know what it means to find the freedom and joy of a surrendered life under the leadership of our true king who died for us. What a power there is in a life like that. I've quoted from Canadian author and blogger and pastor uh, Tim Challies a number of times in my sermons. And on November 4th of this year, just 11 days ago, Challies sent out this email update with these words that totally caught me off guard. In all the years I've been writing, I have never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. 
Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself. My dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. Nick was playing a game with his sister and fiance and many other students when he suddenly collapsed, never regaining consciousness. Students, paramedics, and doctors battled valiantly but could not save him. He's with the Lord he loves, the Lord he longed to serve. We have no answers to the what or why questions. Yesterday, Eileen, who's his wife, and I cried and cried until we could cry no more, until there were no tears left to cry. And this is a picture of Chalice with his wife and three children. His son, Nick, who just passed away, is on the far right. And Nick was just 20 years old. He was a student in the BA to MDiv program at Boyce College and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he was preparing for a calling in ministry. And he had gotten engaged to his fiancée just this past September. And just yesterday, Charlie sent out another update. And it was supposed to be the day that his son and daughter returned home from college to spend Thanksgiving and the holidays at home with them. And in that update, he writes, This was to be the day of our reunion. And to add joy upon joy, my son's new fiancé was going to join them. Though their return would require a two-week quarantine for the whole group of us, Six people in our wee little house. We were looking forward to it. We had activities planned. We had talked about enjoying some board games, about holding a Mario Kart tournament, and even about reading a Shakespeare play together. It would be quarantine with a purpose, a unique opportunity to enjoy time as a family that was about to grow from five members to six. We are in quarantine now, but under very different circumstances. Our family has shrunk from five to four. My daughter returned home last weekend. The woman who was to be my sweet new daughter-in-law lost her ability to enter the country when she lost her fiancé. My son returned to Canada yesterday, one day ahead of the schedule we had set. But instead of coming to our family home, he was transported to a funeral home. And there he will wait until November 21st when we are released from quarantine and can finally lay his body to rest. And then he writes these words. Eileen and I agreed from the moment we learned we would be walking this difficult road, that by faith we would let our son go, that by faith we would accept that God has taken him, that God with the power to give him to us has the right to take him from us. We would not grumble. We would not shake our fists at the sky. We would not charge God with wrong for taking our son or for any of the difficulties that might follow. But we would grieve. We would lament. We would express the troubles of our souls. And this period of isolation has been a hardship on top of our hardship, a sorrow on top of sorrow. We know God is more than equal to it, of course. He has been so kind to us and so present with us. 
He has expressed his love to us and tenderly cared for us. But still we long for arms to hold us, shoulders to steady us, lips to pray for us, voices to speak truth to us, brothers and sisters to simply be with us. It's hard to imagine the pain of grieving the death of a son while you're in quarantine where none of your loved ones can visit you to even support you and comfort you in your loss. But even in this pain, Charlie's displays this unbelievable strength and hope that is awesome to witness. I have to confess that, frankly, there are some posts that Charlie's writes that kind of rub me the wrong way. Um, I don't always agree with his theology or even his point of view. But as I read these posts about the death of his son, I realized how insignificant those differences are compared with the hope that we hold in common in Christ. I have not lost a son like he has. But there is an unmistakable imprint of God that I can recognize and identify with because I have experienced that same touch of God in my life. This is a life that has been changed by the love of Jesus. We know that our Redeemer lives. Martin Luther's hymn of safe stronghold ends with these words. And though they take our life, goods, honor, children, wife, yet is their profit small. These things shall vanish all. The city of God remaineth. Let's pray. I want you to understand the fullness of the gospel message that is preached in the pages of the Bible. Because it is a message that so far exceeds just the news of how to deal with our sin. It is a love story of God who, though in the face of our rebellion and rejection of him, has given us his only son to die on a cross to reconcile us with him. And in that Christ and in that death was the coronation of Jesus as king and ruler over our lives. And so the gospel is so much greater than what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to avoid the fires of hell? It is, what must I do in response to a God who loves me like this? And the only response is absolute surrender and worship. And that's what I want to invite you to this morning, is to respond to the gospel in absolute surrender and worship because he alone has proven himself worthy to be our king. 
Would you just pray that for a few moments? And then we're going to close in some songs of response. And then afterwards, I will come up and give the benediction. Let's come before the Lord in prayer.